Good evening. Well, gas has become an ever more important commodity since Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And it was becoming so anyway, because, of course, we need gas. The more wind turbines we build, the more renewable energy we use, we have a problem when the wind doesn't blow. So gas is vital. Overnight, some dramatic news, perhaps not surprising. But some you know, two weeks ago, Putin said that hostile states, as he saw them, would in future have to pay in rubles for the gas they were getting from Russia. It led, of course, to the ruble actually rallying to a higher level against the euro than before the invasion started. But overnight, he's decided that Poland and Bulgaria have not met those conditions and the gas supply is about to be turned off. That has led to the price rocketing once again. At one point today, natural gas prices up by 25%. Now, Italy and Germany are very, very dependent on Russian gas. Germany more than any other country. And my question tonight to you, the audience, is what can Europe do? Please give me your suggestions, farage at gbnews.uk. Strikes me, they've got a real problem. Strikes me, however much we talk about sanctions, actually, in the economic war that is surrounding Ukraine, I think Putin is the one that holds the strongest cards. It does say a lot, doesn't it, about Angela Merkel's legacy. It says a hell of a lot about Gerhard Schroeder, the former German Chancellor, who, of course, now for years has worked for Gazprom. It all reminds me of my friend Donald Trump speaking in 2018 to the United Nations, where he publicly from the stage said to Germany, you're making yourselves too dependent on Russia for energy. And the camera panned to the German delegation, who all sniggered and laughed at Trump's gross stupidity. Well, they are not laughing now, but what on earth are we going to do? Because what would happen if Putin really decided to turn off the taps to Germany and Italy as well? Well, joining me to discuss what is now an absolutely vital, crucial issue, and by the way, we are not uh, getting away with this scot-free either. Clive Moffat, gas consultant, and now an advisor to the government on energy policy and security. Uh, Clive, were you surprised by what Putin did? No, no. I think it was um, it, it, it was inevitable that there would be uh, he'd take further action against states that he considered to be unfriendly. Um, I think the implications. I think in Bulgaria, ninety percent dependent on Gazprom. Ninety percent. Um, I think a deal will be struck there. Uh, quite honestly, I do not think that that will happen in terms of a curtailment. Poland different, 40% um, dependent, um, but of course Poland has one of the highest storage levels in Europe and nearly has a strategic reserve, 80% in excess of demand. Wow. So, I mean, to some extent with the weather improving, you can see that perhaps that they can sort of survive and continue to be, um, uh, if you like, if not have an agreement and continue as they are. They have said that they will rely more on Norway through the Baltic pipeline, which becomes on stream at the end of the year. Uh, and they're also with LNG shipments, possibly of shale gas from America. Yeah, um, that's but been talked about. And, and, and again, again, that agreement doesn't expire till December. So if it's really a question of whether you feel, is this conflict going to last? Well, is it going to continue? Yeah. Is, it going to, is it going to get worse? Um, or is it something that um, could well, you know, 
find us a resolution of some kind. But Poland, as you say, big storage facilities, big contingency. Yeah. Just remind GB News viewers of our level of storage <laughs> capacity. Well, we're less than five or six days. I mean, uh, less than 2% of demand. How? How? Why? Well, for years and years and years, uh, I mean, ever since back in, I remember, in 2010, um, we were saying to government, look, you really, if you're going to decarbonise the economy of the energy sector, you need to have backup, and the obvious backup is gas, because you're going to get rid of coal. Yep. And so, um, they, and we said that, in fact, there needs to be more storage relative to demand. The average in, the, in Europe is 25%. Yep. Percent. Yep. We're less than two. And that's continually, you know, after, after the rough facility, the Centricus facility closed 2017, then basically we became um, very, very, you know, dependent on short-term LNG. <clears throat> We have made some idiotic decisions. I'm hoping that as a government advisor, you're now going to turn this round. Well, it's interesting. I did have conversations with Bayes in the last two weeks, and the question was raised about what could we do short term mm -hmm. and medium term to uh, remove the risk or mitigate the risk of gas uh, on gas security and also electricity, remember, because we are between 40 and 60 percent dependent on gas power when the yeah. wind is not blowing yeah. and the sun's, yeah. sun's not shining. So I think that um, they have become, they are becoming warm into the idea of the idea of storage. They particularly think it could be useful not only in terms of natural gas, but also eventually hydrogen. And so but storage takes time, five mm. years minimum, mm. Uh, even well, on we, a stage basis. No, no, we are where we are. But what do Germany do, Clive? This is my big question, because mm -hmm. I've said from the start of this, Whatever we say about sanctions, the ultimate sanction, economic sanction, is Putin literally turning off the gas to Germany. Uh, what can Germany do? What is Germany... Does, does Germany see a way out? Because I noticed that Germany have not um, been sanctioned at all by Russia because I guess they're not considered to be a hostile state. That's the criteria, isn't no, it? No, and also there is a many years, as you said earlier, of engagement. I mean, Nord Stream 2 was an agreement between two nation states, um, and, it's, um, and it has been built. It has just hasn't been switched on. Um, and so there is, Germany is 50% dependent, has yeah. very little LNG capacity for imports. It still will burn coal if it has to. Um, and, but the problem is it is very dependent. The whole economy is dependent. So you asked me a question, what can yeah. it do? Yeah. The answer is it, it can't do anything except hope. And I mean hope, probably, that there's some kind of a, a understanding, agreement, some kind of uh, a thing can be sorted out whereby it can continue to, um, to import, import Russian gas. If that doesn't happen, and if we have a prolonged situation, a prolonged crisis in Europe politically, yep. then Germany has no option but to really shut down quite a lot of its economy, accept much lower growth, and build significant, make a major investment in LNG. And then, of course, that will that do is that the whole scramble for LNG in Europe will exacerbate. Now, we are coming into a warmer clime, so you can, to some extent, my, I've spoken before about the issue of gas rationing in this yeah. country. Yeah, I know. And I've suggested to Bayes that they consider a demand-side reduction scheme, option-based, whereby industry can, if you like, bid to be curtailed voluntarily rather than have a blanket 
gas emergency like we had on the time of the beast from the east. And so that to some extent grid, if it's still a system operator for gas, and that's a moot point because it's been raised the idea there should be a different system operator and how it would work. Oh, um, right, so, right, right. I mean, there are, there are issues here which short term could be done to alleviate or give more flexibility to the management of gas demand and supply in the very short term. If we reach a situation where there is a scramble for LNG and we don't get what we want when we want it. Clive Moffat, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Well, that was quite depressing, really, wasn't it? I mean, I'm asking the question today, what can Europe do? And Clive, our gas expert, says in the short term, all Germany can do is hope. And it's hard to believe, isn't it? The idiots in the building behind me here uh, who basically got rid of so much of our natural gas storage. It is truly incredible. Now, sticking with this very serious theme of what is happening in Ukraine, Liz Truss will be giving a speech tonight at Mansion House. We're told she will say we are going to double down on our support for Ukraine, and that applies particularly in terms of military equipment. It is also rumoured that she's going to talk about the West supplying jets, something uh, that has been rejected time and time again. So there is clearly an escalation that is going on in the Ukraine. Is it right? Does it potentially point us to a situation where even worse weapons could be used by Putin? And also, is there any prospect of peace negotiations? Well, I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by Sir Michael Graydon, former chief of the air staff in the Royal Air Force in the 1990s. Uh, Sir Michael, good evening and thank you for joining me. Good evening. Clearly, the UK uh, taking very much a leading role uh, and encouraging other countries to do as they're doing. Um, do you support uh, the increase in British military support for Ukraine, and in particular, this area of whether we and other Western allies should supply aircraft to Ukraine? I support the weapons, uh, and I can't emphasize too much the importance of following through on words and actually making things happen, uh, and that must come from all NATO nations, and, and you've touched on perhaps nations that have not been so uh, energetic in providing those weapons. I think it's absolutely vital that we provide Ukraine with as many weapons as we can to defend itself. On the issue of aircraft, uh, that is more complicated. Yeah. I cannot see any difficulty. Uh, it's, it's a matter of uh, facing up to uh, certain uncomfortable elements of it, but providing aircraft the, of Russian design from Poland, for example, for Ukraine uh, makes a lot of sense to me, and uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to forward aircraft to take the place of those for the defense of Poland. Uh, but it, uh, it's completely unrealistic, in, in my view, to provide Ukraine with, for example, aircraft like the Typhoon or the F-35 uh, or even F-16s because the training time needed to bring them up to the standard yes. that they would need uh, would be such that uh, it, it simply wouldn't work. So, so I think it's got to be a variation on the themes that have already been um, put forward. I understand that, but Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister, Russian foreign minister, yesterday was hinting uh, that if there is any, as he sees it, escalation, uh, 
uh, as a, you know, I emphasise as he sees it, escalation from NATO members, then, you know, bases in NATO countries themselves could become targets. Are we risking escalation or do we have to do this because it's the right thing to do? Well, that's exactly it. It is the right thing to do. And, and he will continue to bluster and threaten and all the rest of it. We've seen it. This has been coming for, I would think, at least 10 or 12 years. I had lunch yesterday with somebody called Chris Donnelly, who is a real expert in, in the, the Russian field. Uh, and he's been advising people, for, to my knowledge, my personal knowledge, for 30-something years. And 10 years plus ago, he said to us, he said to the world, we are at war, but we don't know it. And the fact is that we've been at war with Russia for that period of time under Putin, and we haven't faced up to it. And you've touched on some of the things that uh, were so obvious if you were prepared to acknowledge them. Uh, and I can list them as you can, the things that have happened, which would tell you that we've got a war, a different sort of war to, to a degree. We've now got a serious war, uh, and we have not been properly prepared for it. Uh, I hope this is a wake-up call that really will resonate around capitals. And I hope very much that we will not be upset by the threats that we're going to get from Putin and Lavrov and the rest of them, and stand up together, united, by providing Ukraine with the weapons that they need and standing firm against the Russian threat. A final thought, if I may, Sir Michael. Through all those years of the Cold War, uh, well, there we were, up against the Soviet Union. Uh, yes, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I don't remember, you know, at any point in the last 60 years, um, any big state in the world talking about the possibility of nuclear weapons. Is this just bluff by Russia, or does it worry you that if Putin gets boxed into a corner, that if he's not of sound mind, that, that we could reach that level? Well, we, we shouldn't forget Cuba, but I think, in a sense, that was a, a bit of an aberration. You're right. The reason that we, in my view, uh, didn't have that uh, drama, if you like, was because we had uh, a thing called flexible response, a strategy, which provided a whole raft of capabilities uh, to deal with different incursions, different situations, which were very evident to the then Soviet Union, who knew that we had capability, they knew that we were united, we were prepared to use it. And uh, that is what has been lacking for so long and what has encouraged Putin uh, in what he's up to now. I think we have to take these on the chin uh, and, and just push back. So, Michael Graydon, thank you very much indeed for joining me here on GB News this evening. I asked you, what can Europe do in the face of the taps being turned off to Poland and Bulgaria and the real danger that Putin could do the same to Germany and Italy? You say, Ryan says, what else can we do other than panic? That's very helpful, Ryan. Thank you. Sue says, we knew this was coming. About time we and the rest of Europe became self-sufficient. Sue, I couldn't agree more. I, um, Adam says, Adam says, we need to go harder with the sanctions, although we should be fine, but I worry for mainland Europe. We can all go harder with the sanctions, but the point I'm trying to make tonight is that sanctions are not a one-way street. Sanctions bounce back on us, and actually, when it comes to sanctions, Putin could hurt us economically much more 
in the short term that we can ever hurt him. One viewer says, what did we expect? Russia was always going to retaliate, and this is the consequence. Let's get fracking. And Sarah says, Europe needs to be united and get through this together. Well, I was in the European Parliament for 20, nearly 21 years. I never saw it being particularly united, but never mind. However, there are things happening in this building behind me, some of them really quite extraordinary. And Tom Harwood, GB News' political correspondent, you've been over there all day. Let's start with the most extraordinary story that a Conservative member of Parliament, mm. someone else suggesting perhaps a minister, mm. has been in the House of Commons, in the chamber, mm. and in a committee meeting, I understand, watching pornography on his phone. Tell us this isn't true. Well, this is the most extraordinary set of allegations to have developed, unfurled really in the last 24 hours. What happened yesterday evening was a group of Conservative MPs were having a meeting trying to talk through how to keep, retain women MPs in Parliament. Many women MPs uh, are now in Parliament, much more, many more than a decade ago, two decades ago, but the attrition rate, the rate at which women MPs tend to leave Parliament mm. is much higher than that of men. So they were having this meeting trying to understand how to um, get women to stay, and it turned into a bit of a, 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 a situation where one woman after another would stand up and, and say this gripe and then that gripe. And then one uh, Conservative female MP stood up saying, I have seen someone watching pornography in the chamber. And that was then corroborated by a second female Conservative MP. The most extraordinary allegations, allegations that were then raised at uh, Prime Minister's question time today, when the Prime Minister himself confirmed that if that were to be the case, that would be a resigning offence. And we do understand that this is a front bencher. So when you say, yeah, resigning offence means it is a front bencher then? Well, certainly, uh, it, it, with, with regard to the ministerial code we're talking, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which, yeah. which covers this in so many different ways. Um, but, but it's really interesting, because when I sit there during Prime Minister's questions, I'm up in the press gallery. You can see their phones. You can see all of their phones. I'm sitting right above the, the Labour benches. Anyone sitting opposite me, sitting above the government benches, would be able to see whatever... I can yeah. see people texting on WhatsApp during Prime Minister's <laughs> questions. You wouldn't believe the number of people who spend the time doodling on their phones, although I have to say I've not seen anyone watching porn pornography quite yet. No, no, no. Well, Tom, keep an eye out because you never know what's going to happen over there. On a more serious note, the High Court judgment, please. Quick brief for our viewers. Yes, absolutely. This has been uh, Matt Hancock and Public Health England found to have acted unlawfully with the discharging policy of COVID-positive asymptomatic patients into care homes at the start of the pandemic. Now, this was a case that was taken against Public Health England and the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care in England. We do know this was a policy that was also happening in Scotland, that was also happening in Wales and in Northern Ireland too. But those countries and those health ministers and indeed their public health bodies have not been found against because this was a case brought in England, English but really courts. quite significant because it's acknowledging. And one of the key pieces of evidence in this course was uh, Sir Patrick Vallance, who had been on the radio at the time of that policy, saying it's likely there's asymptomatic transmission. Key evidence that the top advisers knew asymptomatic transmission was taking place, and yet people were sent into care And they uh, care cleared homes the anyway. hospitals out, they sent them back into the care homes, and 20,000 people died prematurely unnecessarily. 
That's about the long and the short of it. But what are the consequences for Matt Hancock or Public Health England? Well, Public Health England and Matt Hancock no longer exist in the form in which they existed. Matt Hancock, of course, is now a backbench MP and yeah. Public Health England was abolished. There is now the Health Security Agency, albeit run by Dr. So Jenny are, Harry's, there, the there same are, people as before. No the real consequences are not there, no. There, there will likely the real be... consequences are families out there in the country who lost loved ones prematurely. And consequences to taxpayers, of course, because ultimately it's the taxpayer who fits the bill for all of these legal actions. It, it is somehow this lack of accountability that I think makes the British public so, so angry. Um, Anything else from PMQs today that really was exciting or not? Well, it felt like the campaign for the local elections really got off in earnest today. It felt in many ways like an ordinary PMQs, the first for a very long time. Uh, not dominated by Partygate, not dominated by strange unity of the House of Commons when regard to foreign affairs. No, this was a genuine punch and judy back and forth. Now, a lot of people say that punch and judy politics isn't uh, very uh, good for the House of Commons. Mm. I find it quite fun, quite frankly. Oh, I think oh, it's way, quite a good the, thing. The whole world loves it. Yes. People in America talk about it. They actually like it. Well, it's, it's a unique part of our politics and I think it's mm. something that's very good that in that almost jovial way, but also you can get to the number of the matter and you can hear that sort of campaigning as well. Boris Johnson got into campaigning mode today and that was really where he is in his stride, not being on the back foot but being on the front foot talking about his local campaign message for these local elections. That I think was probably quite a positive way for the Conservatives to end the final PMQs of the session on, although Sir Keir Starmer did get in some good blows as well. And finally, Renegade. Mm. And everybody's in full cry. I can, you know, once this name is revealed, I can see demands for resignations. In fact, even the Prime Minister promised the terrors of the earth. Mm. Tom, I don't know whether you've heard this, but I've heard this has been gossiped about and talked about mm. on both sides of the House mm. for some time. And then a Conservative member of Parliament, possibly over a glass of wine at lunch, made this comment. It was written up in a certain way. Um, and, and now the knives are out. Um, had you heard any of this or not? Well, the most extraordinary thing here is that the mail is doubling down and has doubled down uh, today, saying now not one MP, but at least three MPs have corroborated this story. And yes, it has been a rumour mm. in Westminster yeah. that people have heard uh, fleeting glimpses of over the last uh, few months. The allegation that I've heard, and this isn't, uh, I haven't corroborated this, mm. this is an allegation that I have heard, is that Angela Rayner may have been telling this jokey story to colleagues herself, saying I've been distracting the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's questions. Now whether someone got the wrong end of the stick of that, uh, and it turned into something bigger, yeah. we don't know, but certainly what's true is the male is doubling down on this. They are convinced that they are right, that they are right to publish this, and they're quite taken aback by the some speaker. overreach from Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the speaker summoning the editor of the Daily Mail into of the Mail on Sunday to 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 Parliament. I mean, uh, uh, quite an extraordinary step, and I think that many uh, colleagues of mine in the parliamentary lobby are little bit taken aback that that's a state that that's a step too far for a politician to talk about the free press like that yeah i was very very surprised tom harwood great roundup of a fairly extraordinary day once again in westminster thank you very much indeed for coming in and joining us and we're going to be here you know certainly every time as pmqs i intend to be here so there's a lot of stuff for you to report back on tom harwood thank you very much indeed well wasn't that interesting you see, it was all written up as if this was one Tory MP clearly 
a dinosaur in every way. Um, but the gossip is this has been talked about for some time, possibly on both sides of the House. Well, joining me to talk in particular about the speaker summoning the editor of the Mail on Sunday is Paul Connu, media commentator, but more significantly, former editor of the Mirror Group. Paul, good evening. Good evening. I mean, can you believe that the speaker wants to haul over the coals the editor of the Mail on Sunday for the article that was written last week? Is this overreach by the speaker? Has he got this one wrong? I disagree with Tom using the word summons. I think uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, certainly compared to his predecessor, was pro probably extended a polite invitation to David Dillon, the editor of the Mail on Sunday, for a meeting. Now, David Dillon was entitled to a free country, a free press, to decline, uh, as, as he has done. I, personally, I think that was a mistake. I think he would have would have been better in the court of public opinion to have gone along and argued and argued his case, but but he chose he chose not to. But the whole the whole saga when you combine this with the with the allegations about a porn watching minister, then we, you know this mm. is beyond satire. It's, be, it's beyond surreal. It's beyond shocking. You know, and if there's one positive about the whole Angela Rayner. Uh, basic instinct saga, it's that it, it's at least shedding a light on what seems to be a pretty scandalous situation regarding misogyny and bullying and sexual harassment in the Palace of West Westminster. According to the Sunday Times, we have 56 MPs facing complaints, three government ministers and two members of the shadow cabinet. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, you know, public trust could fall a lot, lot further if this continues. But, Paul, can you think in your time of editors of newspapers, and all right, uh, let's soften the word summoned, but can you think of editors of newspapers being invited uh, by the Speaker of the House of Commons to come and have a conversation about articles they've written? You know, I've not worked in the media in the way that you have. I just can't remember this ever happening before. Not, not, in quite, not in quite this way, you know, although there are meetings. I think the word summons is important and, as opposed to meeting. Now, these, these conversations take place, and I think because of the, of the furore over the Rainer story, this took on perhaps a, a life of its own, not least when Boris, when Boris Johnson weighed in and quite rightly condemned the story, which, which I personally have found... Uh, I found the the sexual side of it offensive, but I also found that the snobbish element of the, the way the Mail on Sunday run the story, uh, you know, about you know her education, living school at sixteen, unmarried mum, compared to Boris and the old Etonian background. I found I found that as as offensive, uh, you know, as the uh, as the crossing her legs uh, claim. Well, now, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. Different newspapers, Paul, do things in different ways, as you well know. Um, but, but just a final thought on this. It's gossip. It's not corroborated. But Tom Harwood does spend a lot of time with members of Parliament. If it turns out to be true that this is a joke that Angela Rayner had been telling against herself, it would look a little bit different, wouldn't it? it, it mind you, but if you listen, if you listen to that... Uh, 
podcast interview with Angela Rayner, she, you know, she was embarrassed by it, but she, but she sort of shrugged off in the sense that this is the thing you have to sort of put up, put up with. There's a fascinating thing here, Nigel, as to how this story began. Did it begin via that podcast? Was it a genuine approach to the mail on Sunday by one or two Conservative MPs? Was it barroom banter that was turned into a story? Or as some some suggestions, and I don't actually necessarily believe this, this but some suggestions that because Angela Rayner wears a short skirt in Parliament, which is entitled to do, that in the in in the paper's office was the idea. Good, good God, look at her skirt. You know, it's, it's a bit like Basic Instinct. And then it, what a what a great sort of page layout with a good headline <laughs> of, her, of comparing a picture of her, Jaron Stone and a picture of her. But the I don't. With it I, is, I, I, who knows, Paul? Who knows? None of us know. None of us know, but I think I don't. I don't object to the Mail on Sunday running the story. It's how they run it. Personally, I would have turned well, over the alleged source and 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 condemn them for the dirty trick, sexist well, uh, planting of the story. If that's how it came about. Well, nobody, nobody, Paul could ever accuse the Mirror of not turning over Tory MPs that say stupid things. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and joining us this evening. And. Well, we'll see where that one goes. Now, my What the Farage moment. Twitter. We've been talking about Twitter. I told you that whilst it may not affect the lives of most people, it's really important in media. It does affect what you read in newspapers, what you see on television, what you hear on radio. Overnight, some interesting stuff's gone on. I had a phone conversation at 8 o'clock this morning with a friend of mine, a quite prominent and controversial Brexiteer, who overnight had had his account on Twitter unsuspended. Yes, he'd been suspended for months, he didn't even know why, but suddenly unsuspended. And today, in America, quite dramatic, actually, Donald Trump Jr, Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, have had big increases in their followers, and that, I think, is because people have become uncancelled. And most of them were cancelled for daring to question the election result on November the 3rd, 2020 in America. But on the other side of the coin, we see Hillary Clinton has lost 18,000 followers today. Kamala Harris has lost 22,000 followers today. And if you go through CNN presenters, they've all lost large numbers. Why? Well, I suspect that some of the ultra-liberals have just left Twitter. Uh, you know, we've had the extraordinary situation of the European Commission suggesting that maybe Twitter wouldn't be able to operate in Europe. We've had senior Democrats saying that Musk is now a threat to democracy. I suspect the algorithm is being changed. I suspect there are those working in Twitter who are now trying to burn the evidence before Elon Musk gets in, sees what their racket has been and decides to sack them. And one of the reasons, I think, that the liberal elite are screaming in the way that they are is they've had it their own way for several years. And what Musk is going to do, I hope and pray, is give us a level playing field. Here we go. It's Talking Pints. Yes, it really is. I'm joined by Hamish to Bretton Gordon. Hamish, welcome to Talking Pints. Very good to see you. Now, in a way, you're military career, your long military career, from what I can see, was quite conventional to begin with, because you get commissioned, 
you go into the Royal Tank Regiment, you work your way up, uh, you're of course sent to the first Gulf War, you do all those things, you start to rise through the ranks, you get promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, and there you are, uh, a successful but conventional soldier. That would be a fair description of your first few years in the Army. No, absolutely. I, uh, I never really knew what I was going to do. I'm some three generations of military. My dad was a soldier. My grandfather was a, uh, an army surgeon. Um, so I sort of, I sort of stumbled into it, uh, stumbled into the tank regiment, went through a really interesting time of the first Gulf War, yeah. Bosnia and Kosovo, um, and then coming up to the second Gulf War, and then I got the, uh, the, the news and, that I was not going to command the Royal Tank Regiment, but command the Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Regiment. <laughs> Why did they pick you? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, and, and I remember on the day, lots of people saying, bad luck, mate. You know, you didn't get a, a rifles battalion or, or a tank regiment. It was um, at the time where it was realised that we needed a regular regiment to do this. The Royal Tank Regiment at the time had four regiments and one was converted to chemical and biological. Oh, that's how they did it, right. So that's how they did it. And I, I just was fascinated by the whole thing. And as it's turned out, wind forward, you know, nearly 20 years. And, um, you know, thank, thank God I did. I mean, I'm still yeah. doing what I was trained to do back 20 years ago. Now, the use of gas in warfare, I, 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 I've studied this a little bit. I think I'm right in saying it was the Germans that used it at Ypres. Um, in 1915, chlorine gas, I think, and right through that war, both sides used very large amounts of, of, of gas and of blister agent in the form of mustard gas. And then after the First World War, there was this global agreement never to use them again. You're absolutely right. Second Battle of Eat, chlorine. Yeah. Uh, interesting, one of the things, a lot of the chlorine blew back into the Germans. It's a really difficult thing to use. I'll perhaps come to it in a minute, exactly a challenge we're looking at in Ukraine at the moment. You never know where this, this stuff is going to go. But the 100-year taboo and the, the sort of use of chemical weapons after the First World War, mm. it wasn't really used. And they were never used in World War II? They weren't. There's a, people think uh, Adolf Hitler got gassed in the First World War, and, yeah. and that may be held him back. I think more likely Hitler thought that the West was far more advanced in its nuclear capability than it was, and it was nuclear then that stopped chemical weapons being used in the right. Second World War. Quite ironic, really. But in recent years, we've seen chemical weapons used. Uh, chemical weapons used in warfare, of course, at Saddam, used chemical weapons yeah. against the Kurds. Absolutely. Uh, chemical weapons were used in Syria. And chemical weapons have been used against civilians as well, haven't they? So let's just sort of unpeel that. Firstly, Salisbury. Salisbury. I, I mean... Uh, I suppose it, we're almost back to medieval poisonings in a way, aren't we? We are. I mean, it's a bit of a play, Russian playbook for assassination. Of course, we had Litvinenko here in London yeah. with polonium. Um, we had a number of other issues. Going back, we had George Markov on, on Waterloo Bridge. On the bridge. That was the uh, umbrella, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a biological toxin called ricin. But then Salisbury, the year before, 2017, the Russians declared to the world they had no chemical weapons. You know, when we don't believe what they're doing at the moment, uh, you know, let's not think this is something new. This is the way that they do their business. And then my hometown was hit in uh, March 2018 with Novichok, the most deadly man-made toxin mm. ever produced. Mm. Um, 
and you know why they did it. I think it's it's sort of it's into Putin's psyche. You know, he, he he didn't care. He didn't care about collateral damage or civilian casualties. Well, we'll come to it. We, he wanted to make the point. We'll come to Putin's psyche in a moment. But what about Syria? I mean, there was an awful lot of talk, wasn't there, during the Syrian war that that gas was being used, poison gas was being used, and then it was denied, and then people weren't quite sure whether it, whether it had been used. And this even went into Trump's first days, didn't it, as as president, when there was talk of a chemical attack and. Trump launched a strike. How much chemical weapon was used in Syria, in your view? Oh, a hell of a lot. I mean, it's very personal to me. When I left the military in 2012, I, you know, I ended up in Syria with the media, and then. So you'd done, you'd done, you've been in charge of this for the British Army, but you'd also also done a stint with NATO, doing the same yeah, I was thing, commanding the NATO battalion as well. Yeah. Um, so I had a lot of practical experience. I dealt with Al-Qaeda biological weapons attack in Iraq. I dealt with stuff in Afghanistan. Without wanting to plug my book, it was declassified so that my memoir could be published last year. So although I'm also an academic at the moment at Cambridge University, but I'm, I'm the least academic person, but I have a lot of experience. And I think that's where it comes to. But in Syria, I, I was actually there. I mean, I, I was on the ground investigating these attacks and coming back over the road to, to hound MPs say, look, this guy is using chemical weapons mm. against civilians. We must do something. And then we had that dreadful attack in August 2013. 1,500 civilians were killed. And we had the vote in Parliament. And I was there brief, trying to brief everybody to get them to understand, because yeah. people find it really difficult but the to complexity, understand. the complexity of that... The trouble is, we were trying to pick sides, goodies and baddies, in 2013. Mm. And the idea was, and Haig was foreign secretary, and this, this stuff's not straightforward, is it? Because, no, not at all. Because it isn't, these are great people and these are bad yeah. people. It's, it's much more difficult yeah. than that. And, and I perhaps felt differently to you in 2013, because I felt, if you arm the rebels, who the hell are you arming? Are you arming ISIS? Are you arming Al-Qaeda? Yeah. It wasn't easy, was it? It wasn't. But what, what I was concerned about, the civilians, because they were the ones who were suffering. Of the 1,500 people who died in Ghouta, 99% were civilians, because actually the rebels and the Assad and his guys, they had gas masks and stuff like that. So that was why, and I think it, it kept Assad in power, because uh, these weapons are morbidly brilliant. And mm -hmm. without, you know, wanting to go into too much detail, you know, if, if you have no morals or scruples, you'd use them all the time, because, you know, Assad had fought conventionally for four years in Aleppo and got nowhere. But 13 days of chlorine barrel bombs and, 400,000 people survived. I mean, wind forward to Mariupol. If, if Putin wanted this over now, that is what he'd do. But hopefully our resolve is so much better now than it was back then. And I quite, you know, there, there is so much difficulty over the whole Syrian thing. But it did when both ourselves and the Americans decided not to act. It sort of gave a red light, a green light to every dictator, despot, rogue state and terrorist that actually you can use these dreadful weapons and get away with it. The 100-year the taboo was caused by people didn't think they could get away with it. And I think that's something we've really got to rebalance now. now. Now, that's interesting. Is Putin capable of using chemical weapons? Absolutely. Looks like it, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've just been on a briefing with an ex-CIA guy this afternoon who knows the Russians probably better than most. And he thinks it's, it's in the psyche. Um, but, but it's crucial. How, we, how do we prevent him using them? Um, Putin didn't think 
that the West would react when he invaded Ukraine. Because he saw weakness after Afghanistan. Absolutely, absolutely. He thought the West was a pushover, therefore yeah. he could get on and do it, get a bit of flack, few sanctions and crack on. Thank God we, we've dug in because this person also believes that you know, Putin will, will not think twice at the moment of perhaps using a, a, a tactical nuclear weapon. Because there's been a bit of ambiguity you know, from politicians, not just here, but all over the place. You know, I, I, asking somebody just outside, do you think we will strike Putin if he uses a chemical weapon? I'd be interested yeah. to know what your answer well, is. Well, I mean, Joe Biden was sort of caught on the hop with yeah. this. And the answer is the West doesn't know what it would do. Absolutely. And chemical weapons, fine. Stand fast that. Yeah. But nuclear weapons, I say even a tactical nuclear weapon, which is three yeah. kilotons, 3,000 tons. I'm afraid we'd have to respond. We, 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 we have to respond. And they ha but, but the key is they have to know that we'd respond. Entirely. And I'm not absolutely convinced that Putin knows that at the moment. So I hope Liz Truss tonight in her Imagine speech her. down the road, yeah. um, quite, you know, I think she needs to be very careful what she is offering, um, but we should offer it. We should also not necessarily tell Putin everything that we're doing mm. and giving. Mm. I mean, there, mm. there is a bit here, but absolutely mm. we need to say you, th there is a Rubicon, there is a red line to be crossed. You use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine and we're going to hammer you. Now, let's hope <clears throat> not everybody in the Kremlin thinks the same way as Putin. I'm, I'm sure that's the case. I think if he does use a tactical nuclear weapon, I think that might flick the switch for a lot of people in the Kremlin. So hopefully they will bring him down rather than well, us getting embroiled let's hope in so. some let's dreadful hope so. conflict. Hamish, strong words there from you. Now, changing tack a little bit on some personal stuff. Um, you are a sufferer from, I don't know how you deal with this, sudden death syndrome. Yes, absolutely. Um, sudden cardiac death syndrome. When was this diagnosed? Um, it, it was <laughs> most things in my life are sort of vaguely amusing and vaguely offbeat. Um, I, I'm a very fit person. I was talking to your people. You know, I broke the world press-up record many years ago. <laughs> How many press-ups was that? Um, 4,489 in three hours. I think 10 would do me. Well, <laughs> it, well, it might do me now as well. But um, I, I was, and I used to run army rowing. I'm a very, I'm a rubbish but very keen rower. Yeah. And so, I, so fit guy. Very fit, uh, just like um, Ericsson, uh, Fabrice Mwamba, other sufferers of this. And it tends to be people like us who are super fit, who this thing is right on the margin. But if something triggers it, it can be terminal, as we've seen. And I'm campaigning very hard for the British Heart Foundation and Cardiomyopathy UK. Because whenever you hear of a young boy or girl who dies in a sports yeah. pitch, it's generally this. But if you know you've got it, I mean, I now have a a um, defibrillator yeah. fitted. Yes. Um, I still run every day. And if the worst happens, to, if something happens, this thing will, will save my life. As Ericsson is playing premiership football. Okay. Which, um, you know, so you can, if you know about it, you can do something about it. But if you don't, then that's when you have these dreadful things. So it, it's a question of living with it. But, yeah. you know, my view, you know, seeing all the things I've seen on the battlefields of the world and you know, particularly in Syria, all the children I've seen being killed Correct. and everything else, actually, it just it doubles. You know, I, I, when I, 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 I had prostate cancer as well, and that was diagnosed when I was in Syria a few years ago. And um, I got the call from my oncologist. He said, yeah, sorry, mate, actually, mm. the tumour is cancerous. Mm. He said, but it's a Gleason 6, which is the sort of fairly yeah. benign one. And I, w I was in a hospital in Idlib, 
And I, I, th I said, oh, fuck yeah, but feeling pretty glum. There was a little boy in front of me who had been caught in a Russian air attack four weeks before. He had no legs yeah. and one arm. And I looked at him and a, a little crease came in his face and then his face lit up in the biggest smile. And I just said, you know, DBG, get a grip. Absolutely. I gave him all I Absolutely. had, $50. And it's all and in here, Chemical on. Warrior. This is your book of your life and all the things that you've done. Absolutely. And also, if I can plug one more bit. Quickly. There's a chapter in there called Surviving Chemical and Biological Attack, yep. which we publish free online in Ukrainian and English. And hopefully it is in every home in Ukraine. So, Well, let's hope it's not needed. Let's hope it's not needed. But, it's but there. there are five simple rules you can follow to survive. And hey, that's Mr. what we're trying to hey, do. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, thank you for joining me on Talking Pints. Pleasure. We have two minutes left on the programme. Two minutes, and Carol asks me, do you think there should be a strict dress code in the House of Commons? Well, I'm sure Hamish thinks there should be a strict dress code <laughs> everywhere because he's an army <laughs> officer. Absolutely. Um, look, I think that we, can, we, we should expect our uh, elected officials not to be slovenly. I think that's the one thing I would say. And should gentlemen wear a jacket? Yes. Should they be forced to wear a tie? Well, I would, but... I wouldn't force it upon them, I suppose. Susan says, why did doctors stop seeing patients while dentists got on with their job? Dentists got on with their job. Nurses got on with their job. People in supermarkets got on with their job. All sorts of people got on with their job. GPs decided we'd have Zoom consultations and be so much better for it. And they wonder why we're losing faith in GPs. We had a GP here yesterday. Mary asks, do you think Ukraine should hit targets in Russia? Five seconds on that from you. Should Ukraine hit targets in Russia? I think to, to stop the flow of weapons into Ukraine, it makes complete military sense. There we are. We're out of time. I'm going to be tomorrow. I'm going to be in Medway, Farage at large, a handful of tickets left. GBnews.uk is the website. If you want to come and join me tomorrow night.